Thank you, Julie. Oh, left my notes down there. Again, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series all throughout the season of Lent as we approach Easter, April 9th, a very important day in the Christian calendar. We are looking at the Lord's Prayer in a series called Teach Us to Pray, and we're going line by line through the Lord's Prayer each week and talking about what does it mean? How, how does it speak to us? Uh, how can we take this very simple and humble request that the disciples brought to Jesus. They said, Lord, teach us to pray, and his answer is the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you grew up around a church, and the Lord's Prayer is familiar to you, and you kind of know the words and the cadence to it. Maybe it's a totally new thing. Either way, we want you to feel like there are some really practical steps in the way that we look at the Lord's Prayer each week. And so today we are talking about this particular passage where Jesus references the kingdom of God. Lord, may your kingdom come. If you look at all the things that Jesus spoke about, the things he taught about, he taught about the kingdom of God more than almost any subject. He talked about it constantly, and yet it's not something that I at least heard talked about very much in church that I grew up in. It may not be a term that you're super familiar with, so we're going to look at that today. We're going to talk about what it is and how does prayer begin that work of bringing the kingdom of God into reality in our lives. So here's your outline, three words, three steps. We're going to talk about the kingdom, we're going to talk about winning, and we're going to talk about praying, kingdom and winning and praying. So let's begin with the kingdom. The kingdom is wherever the king or the queen is in charge. So if you go over to the United Kingdom, whose picture is on the currency there? Now it's somebody new. It's Prince Charles, right? King Charles. That is where that person's rule is effective. This uh, author, Ernest Hemingway, is one of my favorite authors, one of the greatest essayist, writers, journalists of the 20th century. How many of you have ever visited where Ernest Hemingway lived in Key West, Florida? You ever been to the Hemingway House? Okay, a couple of us. The Hemingway House is actually a really cool spot if you've ever found yourself in Key West. Key West is its own kind of little universe. There's a reason Jimmy Buffett wrote a bunch of songs about it. Like, it's kind of funky. But this is Hemingway's house. And I'll talk about the cat in a minute, because the cats play an important part in this story. After Ernest Hemingway became famous, after he made money, he bought himself this big, actually, stately property in Key West. By the way, Key West is an island. There ain't a lot of room on the island, but he got a bunch of the room and turned it into this wonderful home. Now, this is where he lived toward the latter years of his life. He traveled, he was on safari, he was all over the world, but this was home base for him, Key West, Florida. This is the room where he would do his writing. You can see his typewriter here, he has books, being a hunter, he has all kinds of animals and things hanging on the walls. The room where he would write is actually a separate room from that main building that I showed you. I got to visit Key West, Florida on a Boy Scout trip years and years ago. And where he wrote, picture a room about this size, but it's an octagon. And in each corner of the octagon, each angle of it, there was a different area. So one area, Hemingway had his kitchen where he had a refrigerator stocked with soda, I'm sure. And then over there, he had a place where he can read. And over here was the place where he could write. This was his kingdom. 
This is where whatever he wanted to do, he could do. The magic could happen. He could write great stories. He could host people for parties. You could rent out the Hemingway house for your wedding if you want to. It's available. But one of the strange things about Hemingway's life was that his home wasn't just this place of splendor and grandeur. His home was inhabited by cats. How many of you have a cat at home? Do you notice something different about this cat? Look at its feet. Ernest Hemingway's home has a cadre of feral cats who have six toes. There are six-toed cats running around this property in Key West, Florida. As if Key West wasn't weird and funky enough, now you've got a bunch of six-toed cats running around. Basically, they all stuck together as a pack. They all did things that pack animals do together when they stick together. And this genetic abnormality of a six-toed cat lives in perpetuity in the Hemingway House in Key West, Florida. Somebody out there is thinking, this is the weirdest introduction to a sermon I've ever heard. You're welcome. This is Hemingway's kingdom, where what he wanted done was done. His writing, his food, his drink, his consorting with others could all happen here. And what I want to point out is, as much as a place like this is beautiful and lovely and set apart, our kingdoms, where we express our rule and reign, are a mixture of good and weird and evil. And God's kingdom is only good. Where you want to do what you want to do, your kingdom, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your kitchen where you cook great meals, whether it's your parenting, your kingdom, your queendom, is a mixture of good and weird and evil. Ernest Hemingway's kingdom. Good, beautiful, good, writing, weird, six-toed cats, what? And then evil. How many of you know what a moon tower is? You ever heard of a moon tower? This is a picture of a moon tower in Austin, Texas, where I went to college. A moon tower is what municipalities did in the 50s and 60s when they didn't want to pay to put in streetlights. A moon tower is basically a collection of streetlights built up on a high, high platform, several stories tall, probably 10, 15 stories tall, to provide light to an area of town. So instead of having streetlights on every corner, it was a cheaper way to put a bunch of lights together and supposedly give light to a whole area in a city. So if there was a Fin Hill moon tower, it would be in the background, in the backyard right here, and it would be really tall, and it would provide light everywhere, and they would turn it off at a certain hour of the night so it wouldn't be totally obnoxious. You can imagine that HOAs were not fans of these. The evil came because Ernest Hemingway built his home next to the moon tower in Key West, Florida, because when he was drunk and stumbling home from the bar, he could look at the moon tower and find his way home. It allowed that addiction not to so impair him, because he could always find his way home, because of the moon tower. Your kingdom, my kingdom, is a mixture of good and weird and evil. God's kingdom is not. God's kingdom is only good. The rule and reign of God is only good. And here's why. Because God's kingdom is where what God wants to be done is done where he says, this is what needs to happen here, and it happens. 
where he says it's not okay for people to be hungry, and people come and they feed the hungry. That is a place where God's kingdom is breaking forth. God's kingdom is breaking forth as our kids are learning the truth of the scriptures. God's kingdom is breaking forth in your marriage when you apologize, when you seek, when you seek reconciliation, when you say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. These are places where the values of the kingdom, truth and honesty and justice and righteousness, begin to take flight. Because the kingdom of God is where what God wants to be done is done. God's kingdom is coming. It will come in fullness when Jesus returns. And we can catch glimpses of it, snippets of it in our daily life. But remember, your kingdom, my kingdom, where we try to exercise our rule, our will, our reign, it's a mixture of good and weird and evil. But God's kingdom is only good. So, what would prevent us from wanting God's kingdom? Why, why wouldn't we want to participate in this? Why wouldn't we say, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to be all about that. Like, who doesn't want God's rule and God's reign in the world? How do we participate in this? Prayer is the key to that. But first, before we talk about prayer, we have to talk about the heart attitude that needs to come into prayer. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at a brief moment from Jesus' life and ministry with his disciples because it's instructive for how we look at prayer and how we look at the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 1 in just a moment, but let me set the scene for us. Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, kind of comes toward the tail end of it. Jesus is not yet approaching uh, his crucifixion and the passion, but he's getting there. He has established his ministry. He has a group of disciples who are following him around. And he has just been transfigured. We talked about this last week when he's lifted up before three of his closest disciples and the glory and the holiness of God breaks forth. That just happened right before this passage, as did Jesus revealing a very important detail to his disciples that he hadn't talked a whole lot about before. And that was that he was going to die. The Son of Man must be killed. So the disciples are wrestling with all these realities. They're wrestling with the reality of Jesus is holy and he's good and he's powerful and he's teaching us to pray and this is lovely. And they're wrestling with the reality of he's our leader and he's going to die. He's going to die. And so in the wake of all this, the disciples, they act a little funny. Remember, good, weird, evil. This is a little weird. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest person in the kingdom of heaven? Not, Jesus, what's your strategy for when you die? Not, what are we supposed to do to usher in the kingdom of heaven? No, who's at the top of the heap at the kingdom of heaven? Who's winning? How do we win this game, Jesus? That's what they're asking him. Strange thing to ask, but we shouldn't be so put off by it. Think about it. If you work for a big company... And your CEO, she sends out an email and she says to the company, hey, I'm, I'm leaving soon. I wanted to let you guys know there's a succession plan in progress, all those kind of things. When people in higher echelons of your company receive that email, what do they start to do? They start to agitate. They start to make sure they're dressed properly. They start to lobby and they start to insert themselves into conversations because what? They want to sit in the seat of power that your CEO has sat in. There's a rapidity to this. It goes very, very fast for people to try to get to the front of the line. This is one of the most pernicious things about living on the east side. For many of us, winning got us here and winning has served us well. 
and that is a slippery slope. We won. We got our masters. We won. We were top of our class. We won. We got recruited by the biggest firm. We won. We got the benefits. We won. We got the car, the spouse, the house, you name it. We won. And if winning is working well for you, why mess with success? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. The disciples want to know how they can win, how they can get to the front of the line in the kingdom of heaven. And if you read the text carefully, you can literally hear Jesus doing this. Guys, come on. The kingdom is not about you. It is not about winning. It is not about your place. The way I would phrase it or summarize it is this. A mentality of constant competition will ruin us because it is insatiable. You will never satiate your thirst to win if all you care about is winning, if it is your baseline motivation, because it doesn't work in the kingdom of God. A mentality of constant competition will ruin us because it is insatiable. It feeds on itself. And Jesus has to remind the disciples of this. Even though they followed him, even though they've been spending tons of time with him, he needs to remind them this is not about winning, guys. So he goes on. Look at your text with me. We'll start up in verse 2. He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, like this child... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He brought a child into their midst. That scenario where the CEO announces that she's leaving, imagine a child coming into that boardroom and just demonstrating this humility and wonder and simplicity. He goes on, whoever becomes humble like this child becomes what, church? Say it with me. Humble. Say it. Humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He says, if you want to win, guys, look at this child. Look at this child. Who wins in God's kingdom? It's not the fastest. It's not the strongest. It's not the most greatly resourced. It's not the one who wrote the code. It's children. Children. Dale Bruner, a great Bible commentator, says it this way, a little child is one who gives themselves to their little task without being ashamed of the task's littleness. Building Legos, playing in the dirt, they're not embarrassed by that. Not so with adults. Jesus' disciples are to be perpetual amateurs in spirit. Write that down. I want to be an amateur in spirit living in all that they do with a childlike lack of self-concern, for only children are flexible and up to learning new ideas. Are you? Are we? That's what Jesus is saying. You want to be welcome in my kingdom? you got to be open to the fact that my kingdom will not look like you think it should. Because your kingdom, what is it? It's good, but it's weird, and there's evil in it. But God's kingdom, it's only good. And it is for those, as Jesus says, who are humble in heart. He says at the beginning of the passage, you must change and become like this child. Think about driving and flipping a U-turn. You must change to become like a child. In other words, even the disciples, they didn't have it. 
They needed to make a U-turn. So if you're feeling some consternation right now, like, oh, great, i got to change my life again. Hey, welcome to the club. The disciples didn't get it right. I'm not getting it right. None of us are. But this is the invitation. Actually, this is the invitation. This is from an artist I discovered online one of those performance artists that you can sort of hire to come and do this artwork live in front of your company or at a party or whatever. But isn't this remarkable? The intimacy, the trust, the hand reaching out to touch the face of the Savior. An adult might go, oh, I, sh- I, shouldn't, I shouldn't touch Jesus. No, 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 no. Not a child. Think about when your children were little and they just, they would just touch. That's how we learn. You want to enter the kingdom? You want to bring the kingdom forth. You want to address racism and injustice and inequality and pain and distress and make our world look like the good kingdom and not the good and weird and evil kingdom. Start here. And the beginning of this is prayer. The beginning of all of this is prayer. When Jesus says, be like little children, he's not saying it pejoratively. We talked about this last week. We talked about God our Father. He's saying, trust in the Father as I trust in him. Trust in his kingdom. Remember, whatever issues we may have with our fathers, with all of those kinds of things, there is one Father who got it right. There's one Father who did it the right way, our Father in heaven. And His kingdom, where He sits on the throne, is the only kingdom that is truly good and truly worth desiring. So how do we pray for this? How do we ask God to bring this into the world? This is uh, some words of advice from Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors and theologians. Willard writes, When Jesus directs us to pray, Thy kingdom come. He does not mean we should merely pray for it to come into existence. Rather, we pray for it to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded on earth as it is in heaven. With this prayer, we are invoking it, invoking the kingdom, as in faith we are acting it into the real world of our daily existence. Jesus Come and take over. We hear the phrase take over and we think, oof, hostile takeover, oof, communist takeover of Russia, oof, all these things where we go, okay, that didn't turn out so well. Not if the kingdom is good. Not if the God who authors the kingdom is good. Jesus, come and take over. Your kingdom is good. My kingdom has six-toed cats and moon towers. But your kingdom is good. My encouragement to us, church, is to take a childlike attitude toward prayer. To assume that the Father knows our hearts better than we do. But to say, God, your kingdom needs to come first. I have my requests. I have the things that I need. I'm asking for this in prayer for my friend. I'm praying for a job for my neighbor. I'm praying for healing for my spouse but your kingdom comes first. Those things matter. But your kingdom, your good rule and reign comes first. I believe this helps address 
one of the biggest challenges I've heard people share with me around prayer. This isn't solving it. This is not a silver bullet. I would not presume that. But this helps address this challenge, and it is this. I prayed, and nothing happened. Or the thing that I wanted, that I prayed for, it didn't happen. You don't have to raise your hand, but every church I've served, every place I've been, this is the cry of people's hearts. God, what happened? Why? Did I do something wrong? Did I mess up? Why didn't you answer my prayer? Why didn't this work out? I prayed and nothing happened. I prayed for my mom to be healed. I prayed for a new job. I prayed for a wayward kid to come home. Where were you, God? Those things didn't happen. First, I want to say this. There is no silver bullet to answer this question. There is a mystery to faith. Secondly, if you feel frustration and pain even when you've prayed for things, that's actually normal. It's not weird. Third, the church should be a place where people wrestle with these questions. What happens when I pray for something and it didn't happen? It should be safe in church to talk about this. And I feel safe talking about this, but I know that other people may not. It comes back to your expectations. This is where the kingdom of God becomes such a helpful framework for us. Think about what the disciples asked Jesus in our Matthew 18 passage. Jesus, who's going to win in the kingdom? Well, what's their expectation? That there will be winners and losers in this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. And they want to be in the winning circle. That is their expectation. That is not how God's kingdom works. When we are desperate, when we are praying fervently for something in our life, we are praying for the healing of a loved one or the provision of a job or any of these other extremely important things, our expectations can start to shift on us. The ground beneath our feet can move and we won't even be aware of it. I get it. I've been there. If you have prayed fervently for something and it didn't happen, I have been there. In 2019, my dad was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a rare and aggressive form of lymphatic cancer. He was in the hospital at MD Anderson Cancer Center for 34 days. Every day, until the very end, my mom and I would pray a very simple prayer for healing. I, I found it in the chapel at MD Anderson. I didn't come up with it. And we would just pray this prayer over and over again, God, heal my dad. It was simple. It wasn't anything fancy. It's not like God pays more attention to my prayers because of my vocation. But here's the key. When we would pray that prayer, there's an expectation, and I thank God for this, that my mom and I shared this expectation. God, you will do what you're going to do. You're in charge. So whether my dad is healed from this cancer, which would have taken a miracle, or whether he is healed when he is with you in eternity and he has a new body and there's no more cancer, either one. We're going one direction, one or the other. Can't go both. So God, in your mercy, bring the one that you want. That's not easy to pray. I am not suggesting that it is a simple thing to pray. 
But when we say, when we agree with the Lord's Prayer as it says, your kingdom come, your will be done, we step back from the control rods. We step back from the control room, the steering wheel. We, don't, we say, I, I just can't. I can ask, but it is not up to me. It is not. Because the good kingdom, the good kingdom is coming. <laughs> my, my kingdom over here, the six-toed cats, no, 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 please, no. But get rid of that. Bring the good kingdom. And the end of that part of my story is my dad passed away after 34 days, and we prayed. And I do not look at that time and shake my fist at God. But I know people who do. And I understand. And you are not bad or evil or corrupt for shaking your fist at God. He can handle it. There are countless examples from the Scriptures of people who asked God for one thing and God gave him another. He is still good. I am not saying this to belittle or demean anyone's pain, but my suggestion is look very carefully at your expectations when you ask God in prayer for healing, for mercy, for rescue. Do not make your expectations of God into the final word. Whether God met your expectations or not does not diminish who He is. If He did not meet your expectations, if it did not happen at a time that you thought was appropriate, if it happened in a different way than you could have possibly imagined, thanks be to God. And maybe we say thanks be to God with tears in our eyes. I do when I thank God for my dad's life. Thanks be to God. I miss him every day. But thanks be to God that his kingdom is coming and that his will is done. If we live under the assumption that God's will is better than anything we could manifest for ourselves or for people we love, we are untethered, unhooked from this false expectation that God will do what we ask. God in his mercy may do what we ask, but it is not a guarantee. And we will not make an idol of the expectation that he will. I am not going to solve this for everyone in this room this morning. I welcome further conversation around this. If you've really struggled with this, I am humbled to sit with you and talk about it. I cannot put a bow on your pain. But I believe that the good king can bring resolution, and he can bring peace, and he can answer those questions. Why? Why was this person not healed? Why didn't this work out? The king knows. You can ask him. And as we do, let us ask that his will would be done. As we've done at the end of each of these sermons is we've offered some kind of practical steps for prayer. So I want to offer one, uh, just as we close today, using Steve Prefontaine. This is a mural in Coos Bay, Oregon. How many of you have been to Coos Bay? My family and I drive through there every Thanksgiving on our way to the coast. And Steve Prefontaine grew up in Coos Bay. He's a hero for people that grew up in Oregon, one of the greatest 
track distance athletes of his generation. Sadly, someone who passed away in a car accident in an early, early age. But Coos Bay, Oregon is darn proud of Steve Prefontaine, and they should be. But Steve Prefontaine represents something to the people who made this mural. The, the words up there say, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. It's a great, great word. But for the people of Coos Bay, Oregon, and people who look up to Steve Prefontaine, there's an expectation. This, this forms an expectation. This is who we should aspire to be. If you put on a track uniform at Coos Bay High School, guess who you're thinking about? Am I going to be like this guy? And every one of us has someone like that who holds a place of influence in our lives and helps form expectations for our lives and for how we pray. You might say it helps shape your kingdom, your queendom. So if you are the mayor of a town, your heart is this town, who's on your mural? What's on your mural? Is it the expectation that God would answer your prayer for health and you still struggle with chronic illnesses? I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but like, what do you do with that expectation? Is that expectation holding much more power over you than it should? Let us be cautious how we elevate our expectations. Not every kid that runs track in Coos Bay, Oregon is going to become the next Steve Prefontaine. But it's very easy for our idols to take these places in our lives. So, did you have a boss that you could never make happy? Is that boss's voice still in your head? And that's who you think about when you go to work? That's an ugly kingdom to live in. My encouragement in prayer is to ask God, God, help me identify those places where I'm, I'm looking at a mural and I'm not listening to you, where I'm, I'm putting expectations on some thing that isn't even there anymore, an idol, an image, a token, a talisman, and I'm missing out on actively participating in your kingdom. Can we unhook ourselves from this culture of winning? Can we unhook ourselves from these expectations that just are going to crush us? If you got a job recently, thanks be to God that you got a job. How can you enter into that job with the greatest level of humility and joy and wonder, even if it's not the job you think you really wanted? If you're struggling in your marriage, you're looking at your spouse and you're going, oh man, we look different now. How did this change? Huh. Maybe it's time to start praying that God's kingdom would come into your marriage and that you would bless and serve one another through the years and not start looking elsewhere for an upgrade. That's never going to serve you well. If you just bought a home, may I suggest that you delete your real estate apps because you do not need to keep looking. It's only going to make you miserable. Our prayers are going to be formed by these things like our murals and our apps and our expectations. So my point in saying all this is to say, what do you need to let go of? And make more room for God's kingdom to come in and to shape your prayer life. How can you pray as a child would pray? Trusting that the good Father is going to give to you exactly what you need. Nothing more, nothing less. Here's a couple of encouragements that we've touched on the last few weeks. If you already have a good rhythm for prayer, I want to encourage you to consider adding 10 minutes of silence five days a week into your routine. If you don't have a good rhythm for prayer, here's your challenge. Five days a week, take 10 minutes. Set a timer 
Do it on your phone, do it in your kitchen, whatever, but set that timer so that you can have this opportunity of touching on prayer, if that's a new thing for you, or going a bit deeper in prayer simply by being silent. Sign up for our 24-7 prayer opportunity. I think it's going to be amazing, and I'm really looking forward to how God uses that to shape our church, especially in the week leading up to Easter. And then finally, do this with me. If you have a posture for prayer that works for you, that's great. If you don't, might I suggest this posture that we are all holding right now? People who want to hold on to their kingdom, their queendom, of a moon tower and a mansion and a writer's room and six-toed cats and a mixture of good and weird and evil, they do not hold their hands open. People who long for the kingdom of God, who say, God, I really would love it if you would heal this person because I love them a lot. But if you don't, my hands are open. And I trust you. And I don't have to hold on to this expectation. White knuckles. I, I, I can hold it out. Lord, we, we wanted a baby so badly and we struggled and infertility and all these difficult steps. It has been so painful. And we hold our hands out to you and say, whatever you want to give, we receive because you are good, and your kingdom is good. Friends, let us turn our hearts now to praying for one another and praying for our world as we move from teaching on prayer to participating in prayer. Please join me as we pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to be a church that prays. And we offer these prayers in service to this community, in service to your kingdom. We pray, Jesus, that you would renew in us an appreciation for your kingdom. Maybe we've never heard about it and it's a totally new thing. Maybe we have heard about it, but it's just it seems kind of out there and nebulous. May we look carefully at that. May we hold with open hands our expectations and our desires and instead make a ton of room in our hearts. Do this through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Make a ton of room in our hearts for the kingdom to come. We want to give these requests to you, Lord, and uh, in a little while we'll pray the Lord's Prayer and we have that in the bulletin. But we want to give these requests to you in humility expecting only that you will enter in as you desire in a way that is good, that builds your kingdom, and that we might participate in that through prayer. Lord, we offer praise to you that Megan and her family are back and that she is sharing her leadership and music with us. Thank you. We pray for all the families in our church as we have been blessed with babies, with new lives, with families that are holding these different dynamics of of sleepless nights and all these steps of growth. Lord, would you help us to be a church that surrounds and encourages people who have young kids and who uh, are in that stage. We offer prayers for an aunt who is having back surgery this week. We pray for your protection and your provision for the doctors and the nurses as they care for her, and we pray for successful surgery. We pray for young men who uh, we see in the world who are suffering under 
a culture of just narcissism and, and poor behavior by male figures. We just hold that out to you. We pray for renewal and that your kingdom would come there. And we offer praises that uh, a mammogram has come back negative. We rejoice that there's a relief and that there is a sense of freedom uh, from uh, a different path. And so we thank you for answering this family's prayers. We continue to lift up uh, the Batson family who struggle with just a whole bunch of different things, complications uh, with a new addition to their family, with a whole bunch of different illnesses. We just want to lift them up to you, Lord. We, we know these folks as friends and neighbors, and we pray that you would surround them with love and care. Um, we pray that their family would be healthy and that they would be able to uh, navigate this time together. We pray for a coworker named Debbie as uh, she has had a whole bunch of medical things going on, tests and different procedures, still unanswered questions. Lord, come around Debbie. We don't know if she knows you or not, but would you reveal yourself to her through grace and mercy, through uh, the provision of, of a firm truth, something that she can set her feet down on about the next step she needs to take to care for herself. We pray for energy for a friend of this church, just simply asking for God's will in uh, the work that they are called to do. Give them a boost this morning, Father. We pray for an aunt who's been diagnosed with cancer. We pray for uh, your hand of grace upon this aunt. We pray that you would even now be working in her body to remove this cancer, to, to cast out this, this horrible disease, and to set her free. We also pray for a grandfather who is entering into the final days where he is on hospice care. We thank you, Father, for the people who have been called to serve in hospice and the dignity and the honor of entering into that process. It's hard, but we ask that you would surround this grandfather and his whole family with your Holy Spirit, that they would just know the supernatural comfort that they cannot explain, but that as they are able to be together, hopefully they're able to say goodbye and to love each other well. Would you surround them with your presence? We pray for discernment for the future, for a friend of this church. We pray that you would make the pathway forward for this person abundantly clear, that they would not um, be able, that as many doors as there may be, that they would have this sense through your Holy Spirit that the right door is just there and that they would reach out and be able to enter into that with courage. Give them discernment. We pray, Father, for a friend of this church who's going to get some rest this week. We pray that you would surround this person, their family, with uh, just this peace that surpasses understanding as they take a moment to breathe, to experience your grace. Lord, may the, the shalom, the wholeness, and the peace that you desire for the world fall upon each of us individually and upon this person as they seek your rest. As we've been doing throughout uh, this season of Lent, Lord, we want to conclude our time in prayer by offering the prayer to you that we've been studying, that you taught to your disciples. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us for our trespasses and let us forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.